and welcome to Rap Party with Prime Video. I'm Rihanna Dillon and joining me is my nerd in residence and one of the favourite characters that I know in life. It's Michael Leader. Oh, Rihanna, thank you so much. I'm not sure if character is... A, is that a compliment? Am I a bit of a character? It's a bit of a tease, in fact, for what we're talking about this it week. It is indeed. It's always fun talking as we are each episode with the people who make the film and TV that we love. This is a particularly exciting one because... There is a whole lot of stuff to talk about and cover with this week's guest. The craft that we're going to be looking in depth at this week is casting. So, Rihanna, to start us off, as always, I'd like to ask you a question. What do you think of when I say to you the word casting? I think of, like, casting on a massive, massive scale with, like, cues around the blocks of kids desperate to be Harry Potter or something like that, you know, like those calls that films put out for anyone and everyone under the age of 11. That's what I think of. A nationwide talent search. (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) For the next superstar. Yeah, that's what I think of. But really, when I think of casting, so much of our understanding about it is on screen, right? Mm -hmm. Because there are so many film and TV shows about actors. So we know about auditions, we Mm -hmm. know about casting calls, but also we know about what sides are, what callbacks are, whether you have a good or bad audition, those people lining up on a table that you've got to present yourself to them. So we already know so much, but there are so many different aspects to casting, right? Yeah, there really are. I remember watching This Is England and hearing about street casting for the first time, where people would literally be pulled off the streets to star in the next big Shane Meadows (laughs) thing, Mm -hmm. whether it is a film or TV series. And also that gave representation to different classes that perhaps didn't always get the opportunities that they might have done Mm -hmm. on screen. Well, there's a whole history behind that, isn't there? You go back through the decades and how people would come up as actors, Mm -hmm. the rep theatre scene, (laughs) where you might be in the provinces working your way up and then maybe have a crack at the national stage and then make it to TV and film. You would have theatres that will have youth groups. That's how we get Ray Winston. We get Bob Hoskins back in the day. Nowadays, not so much. You have to have these talent searches, go and do the work to find the people. And there are casting directors absolutely doing that. You think of films like Attack the Block, which brings a star fully formed onto our screens like John Boyega. He was found there in South London and he clearly had the talent. And then I think of Lucy Pardee, an up-and-coming casting director. Lucy's fantastic. Absolutely fantastic work. The recent release film Rocks, which was almost entirely cast from local Mm -hmm. school kids in East London, Mm -hmm. where you see them on screen and they are absolutely popping off the screen, aren't they, with their energy? (laughs) And also Nina Gold is a name that always comes to mind because her casting agency is on pretty much every credit in film history, it feels like. Every time I watch something, it's got Nina Gold plastered all over it, which it's incredibly exciting to have so many fingers in so many pies, but also I think an agency like that then sparks off people like Lucy Pardee, who mm-hmm. used to work for Nina Gold, right? Yeah. And just teaching that skill and teaching how to find that perfect somebody who's got that magic something. And I'm really interested to know if that magic something is a real thing. Mm-hmm. Is that just us romanticising the moment that somebody walks into an audition room and the casting agent's like, I'm going to make you a star? Or is it really a much more, I don't know, heavier process? 
And it's something that we as viewers have very strong opinions on, right? Whether yeah. somebody fits a role, particularly if it's a role that we know and love or just know so well from the culture. Mm-hmm. One of the many projects in the Nina Gold Empire is The Crown, right? Yes. So when it's announced that Elizabeth Debicki is playing Diana Spencer, I mean, everyone says, perfect, right? Or maybe they don't. <laughs> I mean, I, I think Elizabeth Debicki is fantastic for Diana, but I think people are so steeped in the idea that an actor must be from the same background mm-hmm. or have the same accent. Whereas actually, we all know that Elizabeth Debicki is going to make an incredible Princess Di because she's a great actress. Mm-hmm. And that's what it is, right? It's about acting. It's about being able to not play the same role over and over again. And I think that's something else that a casting agent has somehow got to find a variety of performances in one person that's mm-hmm. a lot of pressure there's that vision and that imagination as yeah. well you think about the actors who've played against type maybe they have a confirmed screen persona and then they have a few films where they're maybe going from comedies to dramas mm-hmm. i think of steve carell who uh, very clearly yes. in his work on tv has a, you know one of the strongest comedy muscles that there is mm-hmm. uh, but then would play much darker roles in little miss sunshine or foxcatcher that clearly showing off different aspects to him there has to be a vision behind the casting there that is beyond just what you already know about an actor. And you get these chameleon actors as well, people who are so different in every single role that you see them in. I'm thinking someone like Tilda Swinton, who really loves to embrace different physicalities in every role, not just different characters, but she changes herself with prosthetics every time you see her. So she can play the White Witch in Narnia or she can play a monster in Suspiria or a dance teacher in Suspiria or... A man in Suspiria, an old, old man that they pretend wasn't Tilda Swinton. That's almost the ultimate Tilda Swinton performance where she <laughs> created a character that was an actor playing a character in the film and then during the press conferences for Suspiria pretended he was still real, even though it's clearly Tilda in makeup. But already we're sketching out how casting is so important and the casting director, they can break stars, they're presented with impossible roles to cast, they're mm-hmm. presented with wish lists from directors. They want Directors always want the biggest yes. stars in their films. But would it surprise you, Rihanna, to say that casting is actually one of the most undervalued professions in film? It's not given an Academy Award. I know. Shocking. Yeah. That is quite upsetting, really, if you think about it, because how much work do the casting directors have to put in to find that perfect person on screen? Mm -hmm. And there are many reasons why people say that they're not in contention for the Oscars. It's something that happens behind closed doors, lots of contract work. It happens quite early on in the process before mm-hmm. anyone's actually got two sets. Maybe even the finances haven't been set by that point. The deal, the production isn't underway. However, I think there's a quote from Martin Scorsese where he says that 90% of direction is good casting. And he's a guy who's had some great performances in his films. The British Academy of the BAFTAs have just this year did introduce a casting award I'd like to put you on the spot. Do you remember what won that award? Unfortunately, I do. But the winner was Joker, right? The winner was Joker, which, okay, maybe once you start bringing casting into the awards conversation, it will be the awards movies of the year that Mm. end up picking them up. I was much more on the side of the personal history of David Copperfield, which was also nominated in the same category. What a fantastic cast that was. So not only was it colourblind casting, you have Dev Patel in a lead role, who we know can play very funny, wacky characters. So to see him front and centre of this absurd story was so much fun. But also, again, you have Tilda Swinton and Hugh Laurie playing Mr Dick and this incredible ensemble of people from all different classes and ethnicities. And it was one of the least British-looking period dramas and it was probably one of the most enjoyable. Mm -hmm. 
and which just says so much with what you can do with casting. It just freshens it up a little bit by not falling into these old tropes that we've seen over and over again. It's a perfect example of how casting can be creative. It can be yeah. radical. And that really feeds into our guest today, Shaheen Baig, who I think is at the forefront of doing that work, finding the new stars, changing the representation of who we see on screen. We should rattle through some of her credits. She's on the Her name is on so many films and TV shows over <laughs> yes. the years, but let's pick a few. Well, she's worked with Florence Pugh for a long time on Lady Macbeth, but of course The Falling, which oh, was yeah. Florence Pugh's breakout film, Carol Morley directed, and The Impossible, which starred Tom Holland mm. in one of his earliest roles. Two actors that haven't really gone much really since have they <laughs> just just conquering the big screen with the Marvel I mean, Cinematic Universe it's crazy isn't it I mean that already shows what an incredible eye she has for young talent mm. she cast Esme Creed Miles in Hannah which was all about a genetically enhanced assassin like how do you cast someone who has wolf DNA and she's done a lot of work with directors like Peter Strickland she's mm-hmm. worked on multiple films of his and, and also and Ben Wheatley ben as well Ben Wheatley yes that's it so she did the casting for Free Fire which was a really fascinating film in Ben Wheatley's career he'd come up through the independent mm-hmm. sort of sector and then Free Fire was his chance to not only mix some of his favourites like mm-hmm. Michael Smiley but with big Hollywood stars of the time like Army Hammer and Brie Larson yes. too. My favourite project of hers that she casted was Locke which at least from the outside just seems like it's Tom Hardy in a car. <laughs> I mean it is just Tom Hardy it's in exactly a car. exactly what it is but <laughs> he's talking to people on the phone throughout the yes, film in real is. time and all those voices are doing such great work so well cast Andrew Scott Tom Holland again uh, Olivia Coleman yes. amazing recognisable voices I can't wait to talk to her about casting that well let's get into it let's talk to Shaheen Baig Shaheen Baig, welcome to Rap Party. Thank you so much for joining us. <laughs> Hello. It's Hi. nice to be here. Oh, it's such a pleasure to have you here, Shaheen. I suppose first question about casting mm. is maybe just walk us through your relationship with a production. When you're brought on board, what do they give you? What stage are they at? It really varies. I guess a, the most kind of regular example would be I would normally come on board a production three to six months in advance. So I would be sent the script. Casting director's contacted by a producer. They check your availability. Then they send you a script. Or you go and interview for the job. It depends on the project. And then I read the script. Then I tend to go meet the director, discuss the project. And then you start the process of breaking down the script, talking about who are the lead roles. Do we need to attach those roles in advance of the rest of the film? So the rest of the casting, do I need to attach the leads in order to trigger finance for the film? Mm. With television, sort of similar, but not quite the same. With film, you tend to have to cast leads in advance to trigger finance. With television, normally when they come to you with a project, it's greenlit and happening. So that's a kind of regular three to six months. But then there are (laughs) lots of projects which could come to me a year or two years in advance Sometimes I've come on board when it's still been a book and it's not been adapted yet. And that could be if I've worked with the writer before or the producer or the director before. Mm -hmm. So it really varies. With film, I'd say the journey's longer. It's over a much longer period of time. And with television, 
it's much more contained. When you're breaking down that script with the filmmakers yeah. or whoever's brought you on board, are they mentioning names? What's they mentioning to you to get the, the brain going? Um, it's a combination. I would say that normally a director often has a sort of wish list in their head, a sort of, I imagine this person, mm. especially if the director's written the script as well. And I quite like to go and do my own ideas before I know what anybody else is thinking. Because then you're going on the journey together yeah. rather than sometimes if I know the ideas of a director in advance, it can sometimes temper what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. And I, so that's normally the place to start. And there's always names, always, always, whether those names have come from the financiers or the producer or the director, there's always, always a couple of names floating around. But then it's a discussion about, OK. Who's the kind of shortlist for these parts? Mm -hmm. How much is it you having to manage other people's expectations? Oh, huge. <laughs> is that like the majority of your job? Yeah, I mean, but I think it's always a tricky one because I never want to say to a director that idea is ridiculous. Mm -hmm. It's all about the quality of the project and it's about the quality of the script and the people involved. And if you have a film that is a low budget film and let's say it's like under two million pounds which is you know, low budget and you wanted to go for a huge star we have to be realistic mm -hmm. but equally look at that actor's body of work and if over the last couple of years it's quite eclectic they've done indies as well as doing studio films then I would say absolutely try if they haven't done an indie for like 20 years then it kind of tells you not to bother because mm -hmm they're unlikely to step out of that. But it is always about managing expectations. And that's not just for lead roles, that's across a lot of the cast. You know, I'm managing a budget. Mm. And if you try and plug profile into every single part, you just have no money left. And actually, I think once you've got your top tier of leads that trigger the finance you just need the best actors for the part. You don't need names in every single role because I think audiences get a bit bored of that. Mm -hmm. I know I do. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Can you break down for us the different types of casting that you work in? Because I know there's yeah. everyone knows about street casting, for yeah. example, but might not know all the specifics of it. And then you've got yeah. character actors and then you have like the huge leads that everyone recognises. So talk us through all um, that. Well, in terms of, sort of the different types of casting, obviously there's... I mean, film and television is now connected. When I first started working in casting, I only worked in film. And you did tend to stay in your lane and you didn't really cross over. Whereas now, because television essentially is like cinema in a way. So now I'm working across both. But, you know, you have casting directors that only work in theatre and they don't work in film or television. You have casting directors that only cast commercials. So there's lots of different types of casting. But then within the job I do, there's street casting, which is a number of things. It is literally stopping people on the street, but it is also <laughs> doing open casting, so open calls. So mm -hmm. on various projects I've done, we've done lots of shout outs to communities. We've put flyers on social media looking mm -hmm. for people. So that is an element of street casting. And also that crosses into kids casting, <laughs> which I've done a lot of films where it's huge. I mean, mm. kids casting, because you, know, you have to see a lot of volume. Yes. And especially if you've got more than one lead role, which is a young person. I mean, that can take a year, two years, oh you know, goodness. to search. And then you have, let's say you're, if I'm casting a 
film or a television drama about a specific community, mm-hmm. then it's about going into that community. If that talent doesn't necessarily exist in the system, mm-hmm. you have to look outside of the system. So it really is now casting as a combination of all those things. You just said that sometimes a search can go on for a couple of years. What's the longest search you've been on to nail a role? I've been on a few. <laughs> um, well, most recently I cast the film version of Everybody's Talking About Jamie. Oh, yes. Which is coming out early next year. And that was a long search. We had to find a class of 30, 15, 16-year-olds who could sing and dance and act. And it took, I'd say... In total, it was probably a year and a half. Oh, my goodness. Mm-hmm. And then when I did a Monster Calls, that was quite a long search as well. I think anything where I've had to look for young people mm. has generally been quite a big search. And how do you know that you've found the one? It sounds like a romantic question, but how do you know when you found <laughs> yeah. the right one for the role? <laughs> it depends on what you're looking for. And I think that... If it's a straightforward role, the person I might think is the one might be different to the director Mm. thinks or the producer or the financier. So then it's a conversation and a a debate. You know, I don't believe I'm not a sort of shouty person, so I I don't push a director. If a director can't see it, Mm -hmm. I'm like, okay, well, let's maybe meet some more people. And then often you go full circle. Right. Mm -hmm. But it's really important the director comes to that naturally with young people you just sort of know i think because that magic something really does exist then yeah but it's not as and i suppose it's not as romantic as that it's more that you know especially with young people you're often looking for elements of the character in the child Mm -hmm. and so that's when the two things come together and you go okay (laughs) this is the person and then it's a relationship with the camera Mm. which is the most important for cinema especially and with Jamie I mean we'd seen a huge amount of really wonderful people and we were expecting such a high sort of skill set because they had to be able to do three things really well and with Max we just sort of saw elements of everything which is what made him wonderful but it's not sort of like it's a magic. It's just a very instinctive feeling. Right. And if a director has asked you to find a role that is someone of a particular ethnicity, yeah. but say that ethnicity is white, yeah. would you feel the need to sometimes put in people of colour to just sort of say, well, what about? Does, yeah. Do they have to be white? Well, do they have to- I think if a director or a screenwriter or producer is specifying ethnicity, the question is always why. Mm. Why is this a role that can only be played Mm. by a specific ethnicity? And very few roles require that, unless it's based on someone historic. And even then, we've seen it time and time again, you can reinvent things. If it's based on a real person and you're wanting to sort of stay true to that story, then I understand it. If you're connecting two members of a family, Mm. then there's a reason to specify ethnicity. Outside of that, Mm -hmm. I don't think you need to. So I will always challenge that. Mm. That's really interesting to know because you do sometimes watch a programme and you think there is not one single person of colour in here and there is no reason for that. And so you wonder where these decisions are getting made down the line. That absolutely has to change. And I think it's almost like you've got to go back several stages to the work that's commissioned, Mm -hmm. who's commissioning it, who's writing it, who's developing it, who's producing it. If all of those teams are representative, if all of those 
departments are representative, the work will be mm. representative yeah. naturally. So it is a domino effect. Yeah. So casting directors will fight for it, mm. but it's who else is in the chain? But I think that we're in a, where are we, 2020? I mean, seriously, it has to change. Mm. Mm-hmm. That is something that maybe just normal film and TV viewers might not understand is that behind yeah. casting there is this philosophy, there is this drive to make things yeah. more representative, to do the work, to do the groundwork, to find these new yeah. talent. Absolutely, but also it's just like, you know, if a role's written as male, why does it have to be male? Or So it's casting directors do challenge that stuff all the time mm-hmm. because that's the only way you move things forward. Mm-hmm. I was doing some stalking of your IMDb and I noticed <laughs> that your first credit as casting director was The Others, Yes, I think. So <laughs> can you tell us about what a casting associate is and then what a casting director is and how that changed your role in The Others? So I was an assistant for about eight years. So my first job in casting was with Debbie McWilliams, who casts all the James Bond films. And then I went to work with Gina Jay, who's a casting director. And I worked with Gina as her assistant and then her associate for about six, seven years. And, you know, an assistant is kind of entry level. You're doing lots of availabilities, you're doing research, you're setting up sessions, you're running the diary. Then once you've got X amount of years of experience as an assistant, you then progress to an associate. Where you have more creative input, you are given a bit more responsibility, you are probably running sessions on your own. It's a much more creative role. And so when I was working with Gina, I'd been her associate for a few years. And then when we were doing the others, Gina very kindly said, well, let's, you know, we'll do it together. So like, say with something like Last Orders or the others, was that the big names like Nicole Kidman or is it the children or was it across? Well, Nicole was already attached to the film Mm -hmm. when... Gina came on board mm-hmm. and then it was essentially casting everybody else oh, and cool. the kids for the others was a very very long search was it mm-hmm. a super long search but what can happen if you're an associate you might end up doing a project jointly with the casting director you're working with but then you may well go back to also doing things as an associate mm-hmm. when you do set up on your own do you sort of pick a lane or do you try and do all of casting at once the lane picks you i think (laughs) (laughs) i think that it you know my experience at that time was in film Mm -hmm. i hadn't done any television at all and also because i'd worked on a lot of projects with gina where we'd done big searches for kids those were the first couple of jobs that i got on my own and it's terrifying going on your own because there's a lot of casting directors out there I'm quite quiet. And so I've always sort of had the ethos, you keep your head down, you do the work. And if you do the work well, yeah, people will find you. And that's sort of what happened. And my first proper big job on my own was Peter Pan. Was <laughs> it? Which was sort of mind-blowing, actually, because it had three studios. It was a massive studio mm-hmm. film. And I was working with some brilliant very famous american casting directors and it was sort of like just throwing me in at the deep end (laughs) and i survived although it's sort of terrifying (laughs) and then for a a while after i did a lot of projects with young people Mm -hmm. and i thought i don't want this to become my lane i want Mm -hmm. to do lots of other things so i sort of actively tried to do other stuff and it's hard when you're first starting out as a casting director because you can't be picky about the work because you need to work. Mm -hmm. I got to work out what my taste was Mm. as I became a bit more experienced. Mm -hmm. 
not to further contribute to that pigeonholing of you as <laughs> the, the, a master caster of, <laughs> of, of kids, yeah. but there are a couple of these films you've worked on where there are maybe it's the first time you've seen an actor and they are just immediately a star, yeah. even though they're young. I'm thinking about Florence Pugh in, in The oh. Falling. You know, yeah. I'm thinking of Tom Holland in The Impossible. And could you please tell us a little bit about those roles, those actors, and then what they've gone on to become maybe yeah. as well? Well, that's the joy of the job, because mm. I think for me, my most favourite element of casting is discovery. Mm. Right. Because that's what it's all about. It's either discovery or it's reinventing actors that you think you've got a handle on. Mm-hmm. And then you put them in something completely different. But I think because that's when I first started working in casting, I did so many searches. I love doing that. I mean, I suppose one of the first people was Juno Temple, who Mm. I cast in Notes on a Scandal that I did with Maggie Lund years ago. And then you just cast her in Little little Birds. So she was like 15. I think she came to London on her own to the open call. Tom Holland. <laughs> I mean, has anyone actually heard of Tom Holland? <laughs> no big deal. I mean, that must be so cool to oh, see. Oh, it's amazing. And obviously Florence, who yeah. is doing pretty all right, I think. She's, She's just doing all right. everyone's favourite, I think, Florence. So, I mean, again, going back to like that star magical quality, when Florence Pugh is on screen, everyone can see immediately that she is the star and each time she's on as you say she's reinvented a little bit more but when you see her for the first time walking into an audition room can you remember her audition can you yeah very clearly so what was that that made her stand out again it's the relationship with the camera Mm. because when you're 16 when you you apply to like an open call or a flyer or something you've got nothing to lose really and I think that was her attitude from the get-go was I've got nothing to lose And that, of course, was very attractive because if she had nerves, she hid them Mm -hmm. brilliantly. And the minute you put the camera on her, you kind of go, well, there you go. The relationship is already there. And she was very open and she listened. She listened to the director. And we were workshopping lots of different groups of young women for the film. And it just, you just have an instinct Mm. about it. And with Flo, she just... She came in, she did a very confident audition. Yeah. It was very natural. And then when you have that first collaboration with the star, do you then keep them in mind? Because, of course, Lady Macbeth comes after that. Down the well, do you know, the funny thing is, because I know sometimes when I look at my, I don't look at my CV very often, but when I look at it, I go, oh, God, why am I always casting the same people? <laughs> <laughs> but, what, but what happens is if in with the projects you do, there's a lot of discovery, mm-hmm. what happens is so from the falling, then... Florence is on everyone's radar. So then when I did Lady Macbeth, we saw a lot of young actresses. Florence was one of them. Florence got the part. Then what happens, Florence is suddenly, her profile goes like Mm. up and then she becomes on the list of producers and financiers lists of like must-see kind Mm. of ones to watch, Uh of which I've been part of that journey. And then, of course, then on the next film she then has to be one of the people that comes in. So it's like a weird... (laughs) It's not about me just going, yeah, let's just give it to Florence or let's just give it to whoever. It's because those actors, I'm going on a journey with them. And of course, as they get more credits and they become more well-known, they become one of the actors that trigger finance Mm -hmm. or trigger sales. So I'm sort of doing it to myself, really. (laughs) 
And what about something like Hannah? Yeah. Where the role calls for some pretty extreme stuff, but also a real innocence and vulnerability alongside that. How do you audition for somebody who can be an assassin? (laughs) Well... Um, I mean, if someone had tried to audition me at 16 and asked me to be assassin, I'd have failed miserably. (laughs) I think the first priority with Hannah was to find a girl who could convey the emotional journey Mm. she goes on. That was the most important thing. And then we had to go, okay, the people we like, do we think physically we can get them to a place where it's believable? Because nobody we saw could be exactly that. So once we'd sort of got a short list of young actors that we thought could emotionally play the part, we then put them through their paces with a whole load of physical stuff, like an assault course. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) So we did that and we did it for about two weeks, I think, (laughs) with lots of different combinations and people because we had to know that... They could do a certain amount themselves mm-hmm. and you weren't relying on a stunt double for everything. And also just it's a long shoot, shooting almost every day. We needed someone who could absolutely cope with that. So, yeah. <laughs> so why was it Esme then that got that role? Because Esme's face is hugely expressive she's able to tell you a huge amount without actually saying anything and that's Hannah that's the character when you watch Hannah she doesn't have a huge amount of dialogue she in a way she probably has the least dialogue in the show but she has to convey this kind of massive journey and Esme was able to do that from the first audition Can I ask you about, are you responsible for one of my all-time favourite teenage crushes in Angus Thongs and (laughs) Perfect Snogging? (laughs) I I absolutely love that. For basically everything about that, I loved the original book. (laughs) Louise Renison was incredible. And then Gorinda Charder, who had directed Bend It Like Beckham, was directing (laughs) this film, this book that I'd grown up with. And then we see the star (laughs) that is Aaron Johnson. It was oh, so damn, I wasn't going to talk about that. <laughs> I have to get in because he was like, you know, literally a poster boy for me. He was a pinner. I remember his audition. I'm sure it was like Ealing Studios and he came in and he had this huge belt on, like a massive buckle. I remember that really clearly. And I was like, OK, he's, he's channeling the role. Um, yeah, I worked on that film. <laughs> Well, I mean, on behalf of my whatever I was, 19-year-old self, thank you very much. You're welcome. (laughs) What a gift to the industry. (laughs) So you mentioned some of the paces you have to put actors through in in terms of training and everything. One project where maybe that wasn't a case was Locke, where you have Tom Hardy in a car and then lots of voices. But I think even within that film, we can see a very much a Shaheen Bay-casted vision there (laughs) in terms of the voices we have from... Tom Holland, of course. Yeah. Olivia Colman, Andrew yeah. Scott. Can you tell us a little bit about casting that for voices? So that was, um, I haven't ever really worked in theatre, mm-hmm. but to me, that's probably the closest I've got to casting a play. So we knew we had Tom and then it was like, okay, you know, it's it. yes, it was about casting a voice, but also because you're just listening, they had a huge job to do. And also because it was live every night. So 
Tom would go off in his car and then all the actors would be there and they'd go into like the recording thing and call him and do that. So we needed actors that were kind of really open to work in like a workshop way mm. that you would in theatre. And so I just I approached it in the same way I would any film really, which was doing ideas, checking availabilities and then going, right, OK. <laughs> a, who would be up for it? Because not everyone is going to be up for that kind of job because you don't see them. But say, for example, like Andrew Scott, at that time, Andrew hadn't really done that much funny stuff. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. He played quite a lot of dark characters. And I love him in lot because he's really funny. Yeah. And obviously, as we've seen, he can be hilarious. And I think it was quite freeing, I hope, for the actors to do a job like mm. that. But then, of course, it was more of a sell to the agents to be like, we, we won't see them, <laughs> but they will be calling Tom a number of times in his car. <laughs> <laughs> but when you start casting that, was the wish list for massive voices or was it to voices I, that serve I the character? I would say or... it wasn't any more massive than the names we had. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. No, I think that because we had Tom, mm -hmm. we just wanted it to feel truthful really and that was the most important thing can we talk about your work with peter strickland yeah because he is such a phenomenal director just makes just weird wonderful films in fabric was one of my all-time favorites <laughs> duke of burgundy of course yeah. you worked on so when you have a relationship with a director like that is there a shorthand between you do you already know what they're looking for i sort of think no with peter strickland cause... not with peter <laughs> but... no because every project peter does is completely different yeah I mean, there are some actors that go in from Barbarian onwards that he loves. So we try and find a role for them in the next one and the next one. And he's sort of similar in a way to Ben Wheatley, who does the same sort of thing. You know, he finds his actors he loves and he tries to kind of keep working with them. Mm. But with Peter, his vision is so dramatically <laughs> different from film to film yeah. that I tend to start with him by saying, OK... Give me your visual references, which are always just mad and varied and brilliant. It can be faces. It can be often references to cinema from years ago. Mm -hmm. It can be something he's seen in a magazine. Right. And he'll send me kind of visual stuff. And that helps me. Mm -hmm. And he's so open to left field ideas. I mean, on In Fabric, I talked to him about Barry Adamson, who'd never really done much acting before if any I don't think and Peter loved that idea and he's a total muso so he completely loved it and that was a kind of gamble I just thought Barry's so charismatic mm. let's try so it's so I know with Peter perhaps more than with some other directors I work with he would be totally open to that yeah he loves that sort of casting. I love the casting of Barry Adamson now. <laughs> such a warm presence. Yeah. Such a, you know, he's such a natural charm to him, doesn't he? Yeah. He brings to that film. And yeah, having been a fan of his music for many years beforehand, that was such yeah. a highlight of that film. You mentioned Ben Wheatley. Yeah. He's somebody who does have his stock players that he likes to use yeah. time again. When you're on a project, let's say Free Fire, yeah. uh, does he know this is the part for Sam Riley, this is the part for Michael Smiley, and then you fill in the blanks, or do you get to well, move things around? Well, Free Fire was an interesting one because there were some actors in the film that he'd worked with before, mm -hmm. but he'd never met Sam Riley before. Right. And I cast Sam years ago in Control, and Sam is really funny. Mm -hmm. <laughs> in life, he's funny, he's got wit, he's quite playful. And I just thought, well, he doesn't really get to play those roles. No, he, he plays often quite gothic, quite sort of serious parts. Mm -hmm. And the part of Steve-O was such a mess. Yeah. 
And I just thought, God, Sam would be brilliant. And then I got him and Ben to meet and they got on like a house on fire. Mm. And he's been working with, I think he's in Rebecca as well. He's worked with him like a number of times now, which makes me really, really happy because seen an actor in a completely different way. And Babu Cisse he'd not worked with before. There was like a whole bunch of breed not worked with before. So there was a whole load of actors that were sort of fresh. And then there were a couple of people that Ben had worked with before. So it's matchmaking as well. It is, it is, absolutely. I'm like Scylla. (laughs) (laughs) One question we're asking many of our guests on the show is about inspiration and taking a good bath in popular culture to recharge the batteries for a casting director when you're clocking off are you watching films are you going to the theatre what do you do for fun to recharge remember why you do what you do well my download list is like massive (laughs) so of course you know we have to watch everything so that's across film television theatre we have to consume a lot. So often when I go home, I like to just watch Bob and Paul fishing <laughs> because it's a complete switch off. It's like a complete and utter distraction. Mm-hmm. But I also love photography. Mm. I've always loved photography. So that's something, you know, I go and see a lot of art. I go to a lot of exhibition stuff like that. But in terms of watching stuff, I mean, yeah, I watch a huge amount of film and a huge amount of television, but Often I like to just watch really silly stuff because it's a release. Because a lot of the work I do is quite heavy and quite serious. And so sometimes it's good to just watch a bit of fishing or MasterChef. (laughs) But yeah, I think everybody needs a bit of a release. Mm -hmm. Because also if I was doing my job 24-7, I don't want to become jaded by it. Mm -hmm. I want to love it as much as I loved it yesterday. Mm -hmm. So if watching Bob and Paul fishing makes me do that, then great. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, I suppose that leads us into the question we should have asked up top, which, which was, what led you to casting, of all the things? What led me to casting? Well, I, from Birmingham, I didn't go to university. I left home when I was quite young and I moved to London because my sister was at art school in London. And then I did lots of jobs, worked in a bookshop in Camden for ages, always loved film but didn't quite know how to sort of facilitate a career in it. Went and did a course, and in those days you could do a course called Arts Administration. I don't really understand what it was, but I learned how to use a computer. And then at the end of that course, they said, you can do some work experience. And I thought, okay, well, I'd like to work in film. And I got the BFI yearbook, and I wrote to about 30 or 40 production companies. And a production company in Soho Square said, come in and meet. So I went and met and it was Paul Tribitz and Trix Worrell and they gave me work experience and I did a couple of weeks and then they offered me a job. So I was a producer's assistant for a couple of years and then that kind of came to an end and I thought, this is not really for me. But I loved actors. You know, I watched a lot of film and someone in the office said, oh, I know someone who's looking for an assistant and it was Debbie McWilliams. Mm. So I went to meet her. And she took a chance on me because I'd never done it before. So that's how I got into it. <laughs> We've talked a lot about auditioning and casting, but we haven't actually drilled down into what an audition looks like from your perspective. What do you yeah. ask people to do when they come in to audition for you? Well, they get the script a few days in advance and we ask them to learn it. So it depends if you're with a director in the room or not. But the first sort of wave of auditions would normally just be with me or someone from my office. 
the actor comes in, we'll chat to them a little bit about the part. It's always hard if an actor hasn't been able to read the script because there's a lot of guesswork and often we're not necessarily allowed to give them lots of information mm. about the script. And then we just play around with the scenes. Okay. So if we've been given them two scenes, we'll get them to do it several times. And I always get the actor to do it the first way, how they imagined, because they've practised it, they've tried it out. And then you just try stuff and get to a place where the actor feels happy with what they've done. You feel like you've got enough stuff to show the director. I always want the actor to leave the room feeling like they've done the best they can do in that moment. Nothing's ever going to be perfect mm. until you're on set because it's a collaboration between the actor and the director. It's my job to facilitate and help nurture the actor to do the best read they can by making the space as comfortable and enjoyable as possible because it's, the audition room is all about trust, mm. really. And then obviously if the director's in the room they will be perhaps a bit more specific about direction and trying different things because they'll be visualising the scene and how they want to shoot it. But some directors more than others, some directors love actors and love directing actors and some directors love visuals. Mm. So they're sort of less about directing the actors. So it can be very different depending on the director. And are there total no-nos when it comes to auditions? Like, I don't need to name names, obviously, yeah. but have you had some <laughs> real stinkers that you would just be like, avoid doing this? I just think that do your homework before you come in the room. Right. Know who you're coming to meet. So if you've never met the casting director before, just look them up, look at their mm -hmm. work, look at the style of their work. If you're meeting a director or a writer, because often with television, a writer can be in the room, just know who they are and be respectful and learn the scene as well as you can. And often, sometimes you don't get the scene till the day before. And I appreciate that's really tough. But I just think prep. Prep is everything. Mm -hmm. Because the more confident you are and the more prepped you are, the freer you can be in the audition. And the more open you can be to be playing around with stuff. Because auditions are odd, nervy things. And so everyone is going to feel more relaxed if the better prepped they are. Mm. So I just say that respectful, <laughs> always be respectful. Yeah. Know that the casting director's on your side because otherwise they wouldn't ask you to come in. And I think it's the worst thing you can do is come in and be disrespectful about someone's work or about what's on the page because then you probably shouldn't come to the audition. Yeah. <laughs> that seems I'd like a say, pretty big no-no. Yeah, maybe say to your agent, this one's not for me. <laughs> yes. Sheen, it's been such a pleasure talking with you. But to finish with, yes. we have a question we ask all of our guests. So we are creating yeah. this big fictional rap party. You are, of course, invited as one of our guests on the yeah. show, but we can invite anyone from film history. So if you were going to be at our fictional rap party, who would you like to grab a drink with to have a talk about their craft with? Okay, so I thought about this. And my answer is probably like the... It's, this shows me to be the anorak I am. <laughs> I would say, so as a child, nearly every programme I watched on the credits had rostrum camera Ken Morse on nearly every single programme. And I was like, who is this Ken Morse guy? Like, who is he? And I'd say to my mum and dad, who is this guy? And they'd be like, I don't know. <laughs> and when I got a bit older, like I researched it, and this Matt, he was, I think he was a cinematographer, but he'd done like worked in television for years and years. Animation, 
Ken Morse Rostrum camera to me <laughs> is just a legend. And so wow. that's who I would like to meet. That's so lovely. Fantastic, <laughs> yeah. Your childhood hero. I'm just like that. I mean, that guy clocked up serious credits <laughs> and he was on nearly every show I ever saw. And that's an art. You don't really see that anymore. No. So, him. Brilliant. That is one of the best answers we've had. Hands down. Shaheen Beg, thank you so much for joining us at the rap thank party. You. It's thank been you a pleasure. Absolute pleasure. Thank you so much to Shaheen Beg for talking with us today. I had such a good time, particularly talking about Locke. I have such strong <laughs> memories of seeing that at the Venice Film Festival where all we knew was that it was Tom Hardy in a car for an hour and a half. Which it and still is. It still completely is that. But I remember all these voices coming in. I was like, I recognise that Irish voice. I recognise that voice. And amazing to know exactly uh, how that was cast. But also like learning about Florence Pugh's original audition for The Falling and just how that made her a superstar mm. and I love that she works with her so closely and I love that she can almost not almost single-handedly but take a lot of the credit for pushing Florence into the spotlight and having one of those I saw her first moments. <laughs> exactly so listeners as always we have a viewing list if you want to catch up with everything we've been talking about on Prime Video you can see Hannah the TV series Free Fire and Lock. And also you've forgotten one Michael the one with some perfect snogging? Oh, yes. The, of course. <laughs> Thank you for reminding Rihanna once more about the existence of Angus Thongs and perfect snogging. <laughs> um, but also, I would really recommend The Falling if you haven't seen it, which is Florence Pugh and Maisie Williams fainting. Mm, but... Oh my gosh, Florence Pugh in that. <laughs> Completely on screen as the superstar. We knew she was going to be eventually. It was just a few years earlier. That is some great casting right there. Almost as good as you and me. Rap Party with Prime Video is a Little Dot Studios production for Prime Video. The show is hosted by Rihanna Dillon and Michael Leader. It's produced by Annie Hughes, Jake Cunningham and Harold McShield, with additional research from Nicole Davis. Our original music is by Axel Cacoutier. And we're edited by Content is Queen. And our artwork is by Sandra Boucher and Sam Mason. If you've enjoyed the show, you can subscribe to us on Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Spotify and wherever else you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. See you at the party. Thank you.